0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. When we remember that the author of this gospel reading that we've just heard this evening was once a Jewish tax collector working in the service of a provincial Roman ruler, that being Herod Antipas, who was son of Herod the Great in the gospel reading, and thus ultimately rendered his service to Caesar himself. In other words, when we realize that the author of this gospel himself was once a traitor to his own Jewish people. As a result, was socially scorned, outcast, and deemed a sinner for his trade, guilty of extortion. You will remember this Matthew Jesus found actually sitting behind a tax collector's booth. When we see that with some clarity and focus, we begin to see that there is a very unique reason and motivation that Matthew has personally for recounting this visit that wise men from the East made in search of the King of the Jews. The arrival of these, quote, wise men is far from being merely a nice gesture or a complimentary addition to the Christmas story as it's conveyed on so many Christmas cards. In context leading up to this event, in the gospel itself, going back to the first chapter, Matthew has already been making a point here that's worth noting. In chapter 1, Matthew has already been drawing attention to the fact that some very questionable characters, people from various backgrounds, made their way into the genealogy of Jesus. That is to say that many of Jesus' own blood ancestors were not necessarily principled in conduct or pristine in pedigree. For example, there are Gentiles, cheats, a prostitute, arguably two, a murderer, and adulterers, just to name a few. Matthew sets this out in the opening words of his gospel as he traces the line of the descent to Jesus. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, in taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, God in Jesus Christ also clearly invites and welcomes real-life sinners in the flesh upon their repentance into the closest, most intimate relation with himself, sharing blood with them. And a close reading of these first two chapters of Matthew's gospel alone, we're in chapter 2 tonight, gives us the sense that Matthew is deliberately trying to shed light on the fact that he was not the only bad boy to be received by God, to be the recipient of God's grace and mercy. There's more. There are many more, he seems to be saying, and he wants to tell us about them. Matthew's point is that people clearly do not have to be holy to hear the call of God and to come and to be received by him. And this challenges and flies directly in the face of a comment from someone that goes like this, I can't go into that church, I might burn up. I've heard that quip a time or two. Which brings us back to these wise men. These wise men, to begin with, are in fact Gentiles. That's a fact. They are people who naturally lived, moved, and had their being not only outside the covenant community that Israel enjoyed with God, but also very likely ensnared in sinful, wicked practices measured against God's standards. Sure, wise in the eyes of the world, but not in the eyes of God and his standards. Laying aside their lifestyles, simply being Gentile alone at this time is enough to identify them as sinners and outcasts, worthless. All Gentiles were considered lost and without hope, having absolutely no share in God's covenant. And this was not just... Sentiment due to national pride and prejudice, for the Apostle Paul himself in the New Testament affirms this very thing in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, Remember, you Gentiles, you once were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This was the starting position and condition of all Gentiles by nature of identity. And these Gentiles are who show up, searching for the one born king of the Jews. In addition to being Gentiles, they are more precisely identified by the Greek term magoi, rendered magi, in many other translations. And what we need to realize and be reminded of is that there is nothing honorable in God's eyes about that term, that position in life, those practices, or that profession. They were something akin to, and maybe a blend of, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, enchanters, as our hymn put it, sages. But I don't think that does justice. In fact, some dictionaries define them as wizards. It was wise men that Pharaoh of Egypt summoned to oppose Moses as God worked all those mighty signs to deliver his people. It was wise men in Babylon that King Nebuchadnezzar relied on to interpret his dreams, who couldn't. Without question, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God explicitly warns and instructs his people against participating in any and all forms of sorcery and what, what might be summed up as spiritual and dark magic. To quote from Deuteronomy, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And this is repeated in the New Testament, where sorcery falls in a long list of sinful practices. If not forgiven and cleansed of, keep people from the kingdom of God, along with sexual immorality, jealousy, drunkenness and anger, Paul mentions sorcery, what these wise men were caught up in. Truth be told, we would do better to depict our wise men as warlocks carrying around tarot cards just to be clear about who these men were who showed up on the first epiphany following this star and searching for a boy born king of the jews this is what i want to draw attention tonight is who these people are what their identity was this fact alone that wise men magi showed up to worship the boy jesus at all should be enough to leave us astonished and wondering wondering about the nature and the extent of God's grace and loving embrace and offer of forgiveness. There is no sin too great. There is no person too far off. There is no person too far gone that he, God, can't and won't offer forgiveness Those who come. If God can call and accept and forgive these magi, then maybe that means He can call and cleanse and accept me and you. And this story that we've heard tonight proves it that He surely can, has, and will to all who come. And that is good news. That's the announcement that Matthew once declared from rooftops. Look at the people who can come to this boy, Jesus. To borrow an image, I once heard the arrival of Jesus on the scene in time and space in the place of Bethlehem, to be exact is like the arrival of a magnet in a dark, dusty corner. Stick a magnet back into a crevice under your couch, behind your desk, and there is no telling what kind of scrap metal you will collect. These magi are some of the first bits of long-lost metal, if you will, to be called out of the darkness To step into the light to come and to cling to this king and it is absolutely glorious to see it and to share in it and to read about it the question we ought to be confronted with every year on epiphany at this time is will you do the same will we collectively do the same Will we respond to the Christ, the King, journeying in faith, following in the very same footsteps that they took to come and cling to this King? Even if that means that others won't join you. Even if that means that others may sneer at you for your faith in this King. It's worth noting that When the wise men showed up in Jerusalem, nobody really took notice. Sure, a lot of people were able to read the scriptures and say, oh, the Messiah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But who packed up their bags and went with the wise men? No one. Not everyone responds to this call. Some respond not at all, and are completely indifferent. Some are hostile, like Herod. The question is, will you respond? Will you come? And will you bear your gift, a gift greater than gold, greater than frankincense, greater than myrrh, that you have to give back to God? It's the same gift that they gave that was the most valuable of all their hearts. They gave their hearts to this king. Maybe you know all about what it's like to go to church, but maybe you've never really known what it means to truly come to the king at church, bearing all. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, I hope and pray that you take heart, as I have from this story, to hear the call and the invitation to come and to cling to this King and to worship him, not just the King of the Jews, but the King of heaven and earth. Amen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.